0: hi and welcome back to out of curiosity i'm nick and i'm garland and today we are going to talk about uh the question of the ethics of the war waged by israel in the book of joshua Uh, this is a question we get quite often when we go through the story of the bible is when you read the the account of what god told israel to do when he sent them into canaan to take the land it sounds very similar to some of the things we hear groups like ISIS doing to this day, where they come in the name of their God, and they claim territory, and they put to death people who don't follow their God, and they drive out and take take over areas, and so um, a lot of people are uncomfortable with that, it's one of the... the the biggest uh, objections to the Christian faith is how can we have any moral ground to condemn what ISIS does when we have that same heritage and even apparently God directing Israel to do that uh, when they took the promised land. And so how do we make sense of this story in Joshua um, in light of some of these contemporary ethical concerns around genocide? And so when we use this word genocide, uh, just to just to define it, uh, Webster's definition of genocide is the deliberate and systematic destruction of a racial, political, or cultural group. So the question did God tell Israel to commit genocide?
1: And if so, where does that leave us? Right. And, and even like when we approach this topic, usually it is being posed by someone saying, your God can't be trusted, your God is unethical. Right. Um, and just, just to get us thinking in line of that. Uh, Richard Dawkins, the, uh, the noted geneticist, biologist, and atheist, who uh, is, is uh, very provocative in the way he says things in The God Delusion, says this about this Old Testament God that we're about to talk about, this God Yahweh that we, that we trust in our Bible. He says this, "'The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak.'" A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously male- malevolent bully. End wow. <laughs> How about that? Yes. <laughs> and when I've seen him uh, read this or share this like in public, thing, he wrote that in God Delusion, but I've seen him share it in places kind of out in the public square, that is responded to with, Great applause! Yeah, um, and so this is a legitimate question that we're going to have to wrestle with, and we're going to take a couple different avenues. Uh, One will be maybe a, a very particular view that I'm going to kind of walk us through, and then we'll do maybe the more the view that we tend to do when we address this. And so keep me on topic with that, Nick. But Great. Uh, this was a question that really weighed heavily on me a few years ago, and I did a deep dive into this because I don't I, I don't like when Christians myself included, when we give sort of simple pat answers to things that don't really address it. Like that that weighs on me when we give kind of cute answers that are dismissive when people bring uh, questions to us. That's actually one of the reasons that we have this entire very podcast. podcast. And so how do we wrestle with this? And what I'd like to do is first of all, we'll chase this one particular view. And what I might just say is when I look at the presentation in Joshua, from my perspective, it doesn't sound like genocide. Now we're going to yeah. build to that and we're going to have to get into some very nuanced weeds to make sense of it. And then we'll also talk about what does it look like in maybe the more mainstream view for God to bring uh, justice through humans. Uh, so with that in mind, we we have to get the right picture in our heads and our expectation for what we're thinking that we're going to see. And I think oftentimes because of our felt board stuff at Sunday school or you know, like our, our... Don't
0: knock the felt board. Love,
1: I love the felt board uh, the, the felt board stories, but oftentimes they create a picture in our head that might right. not be all that accurate. And then we also have to take seriously what the text is telling us. So if you wouldn't mind, uh, give us, this is, this is when God is speaking to the people of Israel. He's sending them into the land, so they're coming out of the Exodus story, Prince of Egypt, Ten Commandments, out of Egypt. They've been set free from their slavery, and now, after years of wandering in the desert for rebellion, they're set to enter the land. This is the book of Joshua. So, if you're uh, if you're in your Bible, this is where this story will take place. And if you wouldn't mind, I think this is one of our expectations that God seems to give for them. If you wouldn't mind, read uh, uh, Joshua. Let's read. Sorry, Deuteronomy chapter seven. Verse 22, Deuteronomy 7, 22, and maybe give us a little bit of scene as to what's going on, in Deuteronomy. All right, so
0: Deuteronomy, um, essentially what's happening is this is Moses is still leading Israel, and our best understanding of the context is he's sitting at the border right. of the promised land. And, and I always picture, I don't know if I actually have merit for picturing it this way, I picture the promised land is behind Moses, mm-hmm. and he's addressing the people, and they're all kind of looking Past him at the promised land right and so he's setting the stage when you go in this
1: is how you'll walk with god this is what you're going to do this is what you're going to see god do and there's there's people there yeah there's, there's people the, in that land and god this. is saying i'm giving you this land and 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 so when we pick it up deuteronomy read chapter 7 verses let's go 21 and 22 okay deuteronomy 7 21
0: and 22 i'm reading from the niv do not be terrified by them, the them being the Canaanites who live in the land. For the Lord your God, who is among you, is a great and awesome God. The Lord your God will drive out those nations before you little by little. You will not be allowed to eliminate them all at
1: once, or the wild animals will multiply around you. Okay, so the first thing we want to notice in this, in this particular verse is God says, Go into the land, don't be afraid. And I'm going to the the word that we're getting translated here is drive them out. It it means to clear to clear away, to set something that's that's anchored and set it away. And he says he's gonna do some, he's gonna do this little by little. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when we when we approach the the Joshua story, we can get this picture in our mind that here come the Israelites and they go in and just one big wave in a matter of just a few weeks or maybe a month or two, they just go killing everything in sight. And that mm-hmm. would be counter to even what God says in Deuteronomy. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to clear them away before you. And he says the very next verse, I'm going to drive them into confusion. And so the picture I think that's being set for us is that the people are going to be driven away, maybe even supernaturally, by God bringing a confusion to these Canaanite people, and they're going to be loosened off from yep. the land. Uh, and so it doesn't necessarily say, go in there right now and kill every man, woman, and child that you see. So we got to get the right picture in mind, And the second thing we want to see as we now dive into our, our mental awareness, our mental picture of what's going on when it comes to Israel and the cities that they're going to go after. And so when we turn to Joshua and we look at this being enacted, so God says, I'm going to drive them out little by little. And then we turn to Joshua, and God says to the Israelites, I'm going to drive them out little by little, but three cities in the... In the story of Joshua, get dedicated. It said dedicated for devotion. The Hebrew word for this is harem. There, everything in the man, woman, child, everything is to be killed. Three cities get this kind of particular uh, end. This kind of particular yeah. destiny. And I want to highlight one of them. Keep in mind, it doesn't say the whole land of Canaan. It just says these three cities. And I want to highlight one of them as a case study for the rest. Okay, will that work? Let's do yeah, that. Yeah, That's great. So though it's my favorite. My favorite one because of the, the the name, it's I. I. A-I. And we get the story of I in Joshua chapter seven. And so if we look at Joshua seven as our case study, this might illuminate what's going on. And keep in mind, we want to get the right picture in our head because I'm proposing that this doesn't sound like genocide once we get the right picture. That's where we're going. Okay. Uh, and so if we look at, Joshua chapter 7, the, the people have just come in and conquered Jericho, and we're going to apply this to Jericho in just a moment, uh, and then they're going to scout out the next place they're going to go and conquer, this next city, okay. and so they send spies out to this place called Ai. So here go the spies. The spies come back in. I really like
0: what you do with your voice you like every that, time you say, like like well, it's
1: great. It's like a pirate. You, you kind of have to do it, and so here come the spies back, and I think within the text itself, in the context of this, it is illuminating, all right? So we've got to do a little we got a little archaeology and a little translation work here. So here we go. Uh, Chapter 7, verse 3. It says, When they returned to Joshua, the spies, they said, you can almost sense they're like, oh, this will be easy. Not all the army will have to go up against I. Hey, we don't need our whole army. Right. Send, and here's what almost all the translations will translate it this way, send two or three thousand men to take it and do not weary the whole army. That's very strange, right? Yeah. Now, what I think it creates for us is this. I must be a pretty impressive city, right? Because you still sure. need two or 3,000 people to go fight it. And they're going, but that's nothing like what we just did to Jericho. And that creates for us a mental picture that they're going into these giant cities full of men, women, and children. If this tiny one takes two or 3,000, yeah, Jericho, Jericho must have yeah, been they had 10, the whole 20, army 000, out there. And yeah. so I think. Even in the context, it's going to help us make sense of what's going on, and then we got to dive into the translation and to the archaeology. So look at what it says right after this. It says, so about 3,000 went up, but they were routed by the men of I. And then it says, who killed about 36 of them. <laughs> and I have a question. Like, How is it a rout if you sent 3,000 up and only 36 of your guys died? If you look at what happens, they're all melting down because of this in fear. That doesn't sound like a route to yeah, me.
0: In the history of warfare,
1: sounds like a victory, right? I mean, yeah, that's that's a one percent loss, right? And and now we have to figure out we have to use archaeology and do a little bit of Hebrew work. So go here with us uh, to kind of get a maybe the better picture. And this is kind of what I'm proposing. If you if we if we look archaeologically, we've we've located what we think are most of these cities, and it's really interesting. Uh, the, the place called Ai. The word Ai in Hebrew actually means ruin. It means heap of ruins. That's, okay. that's what it, so it's not even a city. It's a ruined old fort. And we've, we've, we feel pretty confident that in archaeology we found this place called Ai. It served as the fortress kind of down the road from a city called Bethel. And so Bethel didn't have a wall. When it felt threatened, down the kind of pass they would send men to go to Ai, and defend this road coming in. Okay. And this fortress had, one, had once been a little bit more substantial, but now it's just a ruin. They're calling it the ruin. So let's go up there and fight at the ruin. Is it bad that online just went to Ministeriath and Osciliath? I know. Because in that we picture Troy and these we that's exactly what we picture. But it's tiny. But the the archaeological evidence of I is this is a very, very small yeah. military fort less than an acre in size.
0: So that's, I'm assuming that's going to be significant. It's, it's, it's a military fort. You're it's
1: not a, calling it a town. It's not a city. It's a military fort that protects the people of Bethel, and it's it lays in ruin. They still send some soldiers out there when they feel threatened. That's all they got. Yeah. But it's a ruined military fort. Now, that's our archaeological picture. So that okay. that's beginning to shape some of this force, but now the translation element, and this is what... what Nerds like you and me really like, but uh, go here with us. It says in verse 3. You love translation. I do. It's in so fun. It's so fun. Grammar. Um, we're told, he says, send two, they, the, the spies say, just send two or three thousand men. And all the English translations are going to stick with this translation of this Hebrew word, eleph, two or three eleph of men. Now, the, the issue is this word has a range of meaning. The word elif in context helps us make sense of what it is. The word can mean thousand, as it's being translated here. It's also the word for cattle. So we like don't, send, it's not send two or three cattle to take ca- the yeah, it's not going to work. Maybe that's why they got routed. They sent two or three cattle. <laughs> um, it also means, uh, it can mean clan. So here's sure. a good example of it being used as clan. Uh, in Micah chapter 5, we're told, uh, this is a prophecy about Bethlehem. It says, as for you, Bethlehem Ephratol, too little among the... Elif of Israel. And there mm. it's pretty clearly like a family. It's a family clan. It can also mean like military troop. Okay. Like a, like a, a troop, like a, a group of soldiers. Not thousand, but a, a troop. And most, most historians put the number of a, the best number for a troop around 12 to 18. Okay. Uh, it can also mean warrior. And so I think probably if we take the number to be troop, Let's send three troops of fifteen or so. So you're talking about forty to fifty people. We're gonna send forty to fifty people. That actually gives us color to why losing thirty-six is a really big deal. That's a bad loss. And 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 this is not just sort of us like me making something up with the number. There's some really good scholars that think that this is the best way to take Elif in these particular passages. Uh, and one of them's name is Ken Kitchen. He does a lot of work in archeology span and Hebrew, and he is, a, he is a, a trusted source in this. And I think he's on the money in suggesting that the, probably the better way to take this is, hey, we, let's just send two or three troops up there. Yeah. We'll easily take them. It's a ruined fort. It's less than an acre. It's not even, it's barely defended. And they come back and they go, we lost 36. What are we doing? And so if we take that picture, For I. Okay. Mm -hmm. That doesn't sound like genocide to me. Okay. Here's a military installation that when you pass by, they will attack you. And so they send out some troops to go basically to go defeat this military fort take that exact same mental picture and let's apply it backwards in the story by a couple of chapters to Jericho. Okay. So this will be the exact same thing that's taking place at Jericho. Now, the, the same idea of Elif is probably going to be instructive when it comes to the number of the Israelites. We have this picture of the Israelites coming out of Egypt as 2 million. And we get that because in the book of Numbers, it's counting up the men over 20 years old who are fighting age, and it says there's 603,000 of these particular men over 20, which when you do the math of kids and women, it puts the number somewhere around 2 million. Right. And uh, when we think about that, and then we apply that to the Jericho story, 2 million people marching around this city. This must be a massive mega city. Sure. What's going on? And when I picture Jericho, I picture the movie Troy. Right, with Brad Pitt from like ten years ago. This huge wall, or maybe Minas Tirith from Lord of the Rings. That is what I picture. Right, the army of thousands. Yeah, right yeah, outside yeah. The like wall. here's this here's this giant army of Israel facing off against this giant walled city, and the problem is that's not the picture at all. Uh, and we have to be okay with this. Like, and when you say that's not the picture, we know that because, like, I think part of it is a translation issue, mm-hmm. um, and so. If we can if we translate Elif consistently, uh and and we have to use Elif in context. Like obviously sure. this is a word that sits in context, but if we allow that to be the way we interpret the numbers in the book of numbers, mm-hmm. then the number of the Israelites can shrink pretty drastically. And so uh, I'm
0: even trying to think of
1: like so to make sense of
0: how this number can be, this word can be so flexible. Uh, it comes to my mind the use of the word ton in English.
1: Right. Or key.
0: We we can use ton to literally mean two thousand pounds. Right. Or if I say she got a ton of bananas at the store today, right? Probably didn't. Don't I mean, mean like she like got nine, like yeah, <laughs> she got a lot of bananas, like <laughs> right, a right, dozen right. of them, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, and so there's there's contemporary examples we have where a, num- a word can mean a precise number or it can just mean a group
1: of. Yeah, that, that's that's helpful. I think that's instructive. And so this word Elif can function similarly, and sometimes just means warrior clan. Cattle, like it means, has it has a range of meaning. And you've also mentioned the archaeology of these cities, correct? And and how that's helping us say that picture doesn't quite work. And if we apply both of these things, the the translation and then the archaeology, it gives us a much different picture. Let's take Jericho, for example. Jericho, a few hundred years before the Israelites came through, Jericho was a a relatively important city uh, that that was situated along the Jordan River. However, by the time the Israelites are coming in to the land of, uh, of Canaan in what was now called Israel, Jericho has been in serious decline. And we, we, we can I'm referencing really good archaeologists who are conservative and uh, who have done their due diligence here. The Jericho of the Israelite conquer, and we have to fix our felt board, it's about an acre in size. It's okay. about the wow. size of Jericho. Uh, and so there are, there are lots of yards in northwest Arkansas that are About an acre in size. And when just that simple change drastically changes the picture. Totally. Jericho functioned as a key military outpost for anyone trying to come into the land of Canaan by the Jordan River through that pass. Okay. So it's a military, primarily a military outpost that's about an acre in size. And uh, it's situated kind of along a spring. The wall, the famous wall of Jericho. Right. What the archaeology suggests at this point, what that wall is, is they would build their houses. Kind of the the the, the perimeter of this acre was built. There were buildings that were built kind of in a semicircle, circle, mm-hmm. and the outside wall of that house and building was the wall we're talking about. It's a mud, okay. it's a mud brick, not that impressive wall. Now I don't think that should shake our our view of what's going on here because the Israelites are. Not a military army. They're just, they're former slaves that have been wandering around the desert. So to beat, to defeat any military outpost is going to be significant for them. So they still need Yahweh on their side. Uh, And here they come. They march around that Yahweh supernaturally delivers over this military fort that might even possibly have only men in it. Now, what's interesting is who gets spared from Jericho? The the female prostitute, Rahab. Mm. She is spared out of this city of Jericho. So if I, if I take the picture of Jericho as an acre in size, as a military fort, probably made up of maybe 50, 60, I mean, I'm don't, i don't, I'm not sure how many people you could cram into an acre size yeah. of primarily soldiers dedicated to defending this part of Canaan, and that's what Yahweh delivers for them. This doesn't sound like genocide to right, me. This is right. the, the, they will certainly attack the Israelites as they're coming through, just like the people at I would. And consistently when we apply this way of thinking across the book of Jericho, I'm now getting a much different picture. In fact, when we turn to the book of Judges, the book of Judges begins this way. They didn't drive out the people of Canaan. God says, I'll drive them out little by little. If you follow me and trust me, I'll drive them out. Hmm. And what we see is they begin that process well, and then they begin to fade off. They begin to not trust Yahweh. And so there's thousands and thousands tens of thousands of Canaanites that have yet to be driven out of the land, so the accusation that this is genocide straight up this is they, they walked in there and they killed hundreds of thousands of Canaanites is just it just might not be an appropriate label for what's right. going on here um, now that's a particular view and i'm okay. I'm very well aware of that. Uh, do you want to speak to maybe some other views of what's going on here because i don't I don't want to Uh, say that this view is the right view and you must adopt it because we're saying it or I'm saying it. I want to, this is, this podcast is hopefully helping us learn to think biblically. So what are some other ways to take this?
0: Well, so another, I mean, a a more traditional reading would be the view. And and one of the things that, that, well, let me say this way, a traditional reading would be the view that what you do have is them kind of being told to go wipe out all the towns and villages in Canaan. Um, And, you know, one, Hinge on how we interpret Joshua is we get these three stories of these three battles early on, and one of the questions is do we and then it kind of just says fizzles out. It fizzles out. It says they went into the central and they went to the southern and then they went up into the north, and so one question is do we take those three military outposts at the beginning as an exception? This is how they dealt just with these three outposts and then everything else looked a little different? Or do we see those as the standard and we assume they did the same thing everywhere else? Right. That's an interpretive question. So let's absolutely. So let's assume that they did do the same thing the uh, same thing everywhere else. Let's assume that they did go through and and just wipe out all the towns. Um, or at least that they were told to, even if they didn't faithfully follow through with it. One of the questions theologically we gotta wrestle with is if that were the case is God still good? Mm-hmm. And how do we not, how do we answer the claim that this is ISIS ethics in the right. Old Testament? Right. Um, and, and I would just say a couple of things to that. Uh, one, there is a difference between human warfare for human means and God's judgment on a people. Mm-hmm. And uh, God has a couple of unique moments in history where he Condemns a people to die, so we have the flood, where God says, "I am wiping out this population because of their wickedness." We have Sodom and Gomorrah, where God says these two cities
1: are going to burn. Um, and, and we it, did. It might be noted those are two examples of God. We might say supernaturally, supernatural destruction. And then there's examples of God using humans, using to bring humans bring about to do, do the things. same thing. Yeah.
0: So you think of God. Uh, God judges Jerusalem in in the wake of rejecting Jesus in AD seventy, he uses Rome to come in and destroy Jerusalem. He uses Babylon to judge Jerusalem in five eighty-six BC. So God will do supernatural ways of judging people and he'll use natural means. Now what we what I think we can say is that first of all, God has the right to do that. Yeah. We have another episode on on the issue of hell and judgment, but God has the right to judge sin and to judge certain people to, to die. Um, as uncomfortable as that makes us feel, if he is God, he has the right to make that judgment call. And then he has the right to use people to do that. That being said, the story in the conquest is unique in God using Israel in that way. And it was particularly around cleansing the promised land. Of people who did not worship Yahweh, mm-hmm. much like he would cleanse a temple um, to make it ready for him. God does not send Israel outside of the promised land to go attack other people. That's not something God ever does. Like he wants to prepare the promised land for his people and to be to, for unique worship of Yahweh. And so, I think we can say that style of warfare is not to be extended past the Book of Joshua, past mm-hmm. that time in Israel's history. Um, and so, it's unique. And I would argue, no nation today is used of God in that way. The next time God will wage war in that way, according to scripture, is when Jesus is physically the commander of the army mm-hmm. and he comes in revelation 19. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's a unique point in history not to be repeated.
1: Yeah. And in fact, we might even say that Israel's role once in the land was to extend the blessing of God yes. to the nations through their obedience to him, and their love for the people around them and each other. And uh, which we we note frequently their failure in that. Yes. So By the way, that's now been picked up in this thing called the church. That's our task yes. at hand, uh, which is profound, I think, to yeah. bring that blessing to the world and to all the nations through how we respond. Now, uh, I, I I love history, and I love looking at some of this stuff, and I also I'm a visual person, and so if you're like me, and as you read the Bible. It can get lost in sort of this fantastical mm-hmm. place in your brain uh, where you've got these, these amazing visions of what some of these things look like. Sometimes we have to uh, let some of the work that really smart people that uh, dig in the ground do help us. Yep. And sometimes the picture is way bigger than we think, and sometimes mm-hmm. it's way smaller than we think, but we want to think accurately. And we say all the time in this podcast the Bible's not afraid to place itself in the dirt yeah in time in space time in human history which then allows it to be looked at and examined and verified and for me just the process this was a this was a multi month process for me was really fruitful to give me a different picture mm-hmm. and regardless of which kind of view we go with i think that we can answer well this person the, the, the people that have brought this genocide question to me are doing so not because they're trying to, in the Richard Dawkins way, just be provocative. They right. have a genuine concern. Sure, like They're really upset about this. And I think that hopefully this will give us some context to being yeah. able to answer that in a thoughtful way.
0: You know, as you're talking about it, you talk about your love for history. Uh, N.T. Wright, a scholar you and I have been reading some lately, he has a, a metaphor that, uh, that I find helpful. Um, he talks about, he, he uses the parable of the two sons as a picture of history. And that there was a day, when historians and theologians worked well together. And then there's a period where history kind of ran off and mm-hmm. was set out to disprove everything God ever said. And he pictures a day where history comes home. Mm-hmm. History comes home to the Father because ultimately we believe that when we look at history and the Bible together, they, they do cohere.
1: And as, as the, in, that, in that illustration he's using, sometimes we can be... Crossed our, crossing our arms and looking at the history as church-going people and saying, yes. we don't need that. Get out of here. Exactly. And his point is, why don't we come back together and look at this? Because the Bible's not afraid to do it. So let's, right. Let's, let's not be afraid to do it either.
0: That's a good word. Well, I hope this has been helpful. And, um, yeah, hopefully this brought some clarity to this difficult biblical issue. So thanks for listening to Out of Curiosity.
1: Thank you for listening to Out of Curiosity as we discussed whether the Bible condones genocide. We encourage you to look into this even more and recommend looking in scripture at Joshua chapters five through seven. We also recommend The Reliability of the Old Testament by Ken Kitchen and Do Historical Matters Matter to Faith by James Hoffmeyer. If you want to send in a question or contact us, go to OOCuriosity.com and follow us on Instagram at OOCuriosity. Be sure to subscribe to keep up with future episodes.